is and to be actually really genuinely welcomed. Um, we're going to have, just as we're chatting, some pictures, the pictures won't directly correlate to what we're saying, but they're just some pictures to give you an idea of Bulgaria. Um, so we are, as uh, Nick said, from Perth, uh, and we attend our sending church is Claremont Baptist Church. Uh, in 2010, we moved to Bulgaria, uh, where we served for uh, five years with Pioneers. Um, from 2015 until this last August, we were in Scotland um, for Daniel to uh, complete a PhD, which he has just completed, praise God. <laughs> and uh, just since August, we've been back in Australia until sometime this year, um, when we plan to remove, uh, remove, <laughs> return to Bulgaria. So we're just going to give you a bit of a, a context about Bulgaria, a little bit about what we have been doing and mostly what we sort of plan to do when we return. So instead of just telling you about what we have been doing and what we're doing, that can kind of get a bit boring, what we thought we'd do is we'd, we'd set a bit of a context uh, and we'd describe that context and then we'll talk about what we've done and what we're going to do and how that kind of impacts or feeds into that context. Um, let me give you a brief overview first, just in case you don't know much about Bulgaria. It's in the southeast of Europe, uh, Turkey to the south um, east, north is Romania, to the west is the former Yugoslav states, uh, and to the south is Turkey. So it's, it's nestled down in the southeast there. Uh, seven and a half million people is the population. And Bulgaria has this remarkably long and fascinating history. So when you open up your Old Testament Bibles and you read about Thrace or the Thracians, that's modern-day Bulgaria. Um, so you travel through Bulgaria, you, you find these old ancient Thracian tombs, you go to the, the, um, the museums, you find these ancient um, swords and things that you would find in Bible times. So it's got a fascinating old history. But it's got a very fascinating new history or recent history. And I want to talk about two events that shape what Bulgaria is today. Uh, you may know them well or not very well. The first event was a very long event. And it started in 1394, went through to about 1874. Does anyone know what that event might be? No. Nope. The Ottoman Empire. When the Turks came through, they moved up into Europe uh, and they basically um, ruled the south, southern eastern part, getting all the way up to Italy nearly um, and, and Austria through to Hungary. So there was this huge... Um, they, they, over, they were overlords and they ruled this area. Um, and to this day, there's a, there's a large minority of 12% Turks in Bulgaria. So there's a large minority of Muslims that still live in Bulgaria. Um, they think about this often. This, they call it the Turkish yoke. Uh, this event has not gone. It's still, a very, it's still very much a part of who they are. Their second event was much shorter. It started in 46, ended in 87. What might that one be? Communism, that's right. Um, um, it was quite short, but it had a very dramatic effect on how they think, um, what they do with their time, how they think about their family, their friends, uh, and their vocations. Uh, it's hard to describe in a few words the impact of centuries of oppression and just real um, change that came about. In short, uh, it's sort of that they're stuck. We, we describe it mostly in the word hopelessness, that there is no hope. Now, we just put a little disclaimer for what we're going to say then. 
obviously, particularly, you know, you can see in some of the photos, there is joy, there is family, there, it is normal life with the ups and downs. But what we really found living there, um, the sort of overarching feeling that people live in their everyday lives is just this real rundownness and real lack of hope. Um, Working hard is futile, there's a lot of corruption, they feel upon that they can't get anywhere, studying hard is a waste of time, there's no, uh, it's useless to think outside of the box, the real sort of communist um, mentality is still there. Uh, people are leaving the country in droves. In uh, it's got a declining, rapidly declining population. People are not wanting to have children, and a lot of the young people and educated people are leaving. Uh, in 80 years' time, Bulgaria's population is projected to be less than half of what it was in 2010. Wherever you look, there's this sort of sense of, of uh, you know, doom. Villages are all closed down, and there's corruption, alcoholism. Uh, there is a medical system but many can't access it or don't trust it. There's a, a, a real basic lack of trust that was actually intentionally put in by the, the communist regime. Lack of trust in families, lack of trust in authority, lack of trust generally. Um, it's the, the major uh, source country for sex trafficking um, in Europe. And it's understandable that with all this going on that they live with a sense of hopelessness. Um, so that's the context that we were in for five years and where we uh, plan to be returning later this year. So if that's the context, the, the question that we ask is well, what do we have to, to offer the Bulgarian people, the Bulgarian churches there? Um, we have two parts to the answer to that question. The first part is really practical and we don't want to minimise this. Um, Katie is uh, a doctor, she's a GP, and when we return, uh, we're hoping to set up a, a clinic where she can begin to work as a GP um, uh, to help those who can't access the system. So we're talking about the Roma, uh, we're talking about the homeless people, of course, uh, and there are, there's a large part or, or, or a part of society like the women who have been involved in trafficking, who have come back, find themselves outside of the system and so need medical help and quite complex medical help. Now the details aren't finalised how, how we plan to, to get catered to be able to serve these people. Um, possibly working with organisations that are working with these kinds of people. She goes to them and, and helps them. But that's the general idea um, that we're thinking about at the moment. Um, another way that we um, uh, help people is that we do get funds from churches and from people and we are able to use those funds to alleviate um, their needs. It does get ridiculously cold, so the, the coldest we've been in is minus 30, but it regularly gets down to minus 15, minus 20 in the winter. Um, uh, especially in the villages where there are elderly people, they don't have jobs, the pension is low, they can't afford wood for their heating. Um, and people die because they get cold. So we can just buy wood. Um, we can provide soup kitchens to, to feed people. Um, um, on another note, there are people who have medical conditions that can be fixed with simple treatments, even some moderately uh, more complex treatments, but we can provide money to source that kind of service to, to help them. Now, and there's lots of other ways in which we can use generally funds to help uh, the people that we come in contact with. So that's one thing that we want to do is we do want to help them in their hopelessness. That is, they are stuck and they can't get out of it. We do see a, a real opportunity to help them in those, in those legitimate kinds of ways. Um, 
However, that being said, as you all know, um, people, if you help them with medicine, they get sick again. If you help them with uh, wood, they get cold again. Uh, and you know that uh, you know the, the true source of hope is, of course, our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, so we believe that um, underlying all of that work is the gospel, uh, and we, more than that, we want the main outworking of our work to be the gospel, um, which is what brings true hope to a hopeless situation. Um, we haven't spent a lot of time talking about what we were doing. We're happy to chat to you afterwards to sort of fill for you in, in that previously. But we're um, towards the end, we were primarily involved in um, small church planting in villages. Um, and uh, one of the guys that became a Christian um, and has been sort of trained up, he's now leading that, that work. Um, and he runs the groups and also visits um, local orphanages. Uh, and Daniel continues to work with mentoring him. Um, when we return, we will not be working, living in the same place. We will be in Sofia and we will leave Vlado to run that work with our support and encouragement. Um, before we left Bulgaria last time, Daniel was starting to work, um, teaching one of the Bible colleges, um, and he, that's the reason that we went to do the PhD in order to uh, continue this work. I think um, while living there and really hoping to just engage on a one-to-one -one level with the Bulgarians around us, our sort of more underlying vision is really to um, help equip and train um, local Bulgarian um, Christians to, to do the work. We feel that that's the sort of more, more important strategic work that we can do. So part of that is Daniel's work in the Bible College, firstly straight teaching, but hopefully moving towards more in the vision to, to get the Bulgarian church to have um, its own vision for church planting and training and, and, and moving out in that way. Um, we hope while living in Sofia also to, to uh, see what opportunities arise and praying for opportunities to continue in, in and, uh, working alongside local Bulgarians in church planting wherever we are there. Um, so as you have heard, we've had, we have sort of two aims, to alleviate the suffering through material help and to bring hope through gospel ministry. Um, we will be leaving this time, sometime this year. It could be as early as August. It depends on um, our fundraising. Um, we plan to commit to five more years at this stage and then reevaluate and if God has it in his uh, plan to stay there indefinitely. Um, we'd love to chat to you more about what we have been doing, what we will be doing. Um, we will have a, like a sign-up sheet. We do have some more up-to-date photos, <laughs> um, which if you'd like to take one. Um, we are raising funds, so if that is something that is, um, God has put on your heart also, we'd be happy to talk to you about that. Um, but once again, we just want to say um, thanks to God for the opportunity to you know, serve him in different parts of the world, and thank you to God and to you for, uh, for your ongoing support and prayer and uh, for your faithfulness to him in this way. Thank you. Right, Dan is going to give us a bit of a, a talk in a second, but before he does that, we might just stand and, and pray for Dan and Katie and for the girls, uh, because they're missionaries, and they're doing the job of telling people in Bulgaria about Jesus, and making sure that his love is shown there. We talk about love here, this is our job to show his love in this place, mm -hmm. uh, but his love needs to be shown everywhere. So we're going to pray for them for the strength to do that 
in Bulgaria. And if one thing can turn that country around, it's if the people stop distrusting each other and start trusting God. And that country could be a marvelous place if that happens. So why don't we all stand, if you can, if you want to come forward and lay hands on them, that you're more than welcome to do that as well. Otherwise, let's just pray for these two. Into the middle, apparently. Oh, is this where it happens? It is. Father, we thank you so much for Dan and for Katie. We thank you that you have called them to go and share your love to people far away. And we've heard some of the difficulties that there are in that country garden and some of the, the opportunities that there are with people who are desperate to find someone who is trustworthy, who won't drop them. Lord, I pray that you help all their plans for medical clinics and reaching out to the broken people there and the disenfranchised, that, that everything would just fall into place, that they'd be able to navigate all the legal hurdles and that they'd be able to, to set this up and get it up and running in, in just such an easy way that they look back and say, how on earth did we manage to get this done? We pray for Dan, Lord, as he goes and, and, and pursues empowering the people there to share your love with each other. We pray that you give him wisdom. We pray that you give him um, sensitivity. And we pray that you would be at work in, in both of these deeds that these guys are going to be doing over there. We pray for them, Lord, that they would become so Bulgarianized that everyone just loves them and trusts them because they see you in them. Bless them, God. Look after them. Encourage them. We pray for the finances that, that this would all come, come pouring in, God, and that, that they would be able to show your love. That they would love you deeply. God, we pray that you would reinforce to them your grace and your mercy and your presence and that they would go in your strength. Amen. Amen. Lord, we ask for their safety. We ask that you would walk with them each day, that they would know your encompassing arms, even in the hard times. That Mimi and Svetlana will know your love through their mum and dad and from you. Mm -hmm. They may grow seeing your love in action and will respond to it. Mm -hmm. That as they minister to the seven million people, they also minister to these two young girls. Mm -hmm. Bless them with your abundance. And in the hard times when things are dry and difficult and brick walls and heads make contact, remind them that you are there. Mm. That you are there and they are there because you've asked them to be. Thank you for them. Yes, Lord. Father, I just want to pray for Katie too, Lord, as she deals with people who have been in situations that really we don't understand, we have no experience of, Lord, to clinical symptoms is, can be pretty much by the book but to love to understand to show a different way Father 
Mm. I pray that your Holy Spirit might just work through her as she works with these patients, Father, that they might see you, Lord, that they might know you and their lives might be truly transformed. Thank you, Lord, for these people and their willingness to go to Bulgaria, to be willing to listen to your voice and meet the needs of these people. Thank you, Father. And we leave them in your hands, God. Amen. Amen. Okay. We read the text. Do you want me to read the text? Yeah. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, uh, could you turn with me to John chapter 8? And we're going to be reading from verses 2 to 11. John chapter 8, verses 2 to 11. And we'll put it up on the screen as well. At dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. And the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery, caught in the act of adultery, some translations put it. They made her stand before the group. Just picture yourself there. You're having a great time. Jesus is talking. This is the most amazing thing. And all of a sudden, this crying, tearful woman, her hair disheveled, they probably dragged her in by her hair, standing in front of you. And the smartly dressed Pharisees and teachers of the law are standing there. And they say to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, we were commanded to stone such women. Hmm. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started writing on the ground with his finger. And they kept on questioning him. He straightened up. And just, it's just one sentence, but this goes on for a while. And they're throwing accusations at him. Come on, Jesus, what do you say? Ha, 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 silent, hey? Well, what are you going to say, Jesus? And they kept on questioning him. He straightened up. He said to them, Let, let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time. The oldest first until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. And the crowds are there and they've, they've watched this happen. And you've seen them slink away. Picture yourself there. Jesus straightened up, probably dusted his finger off, said to the woman, Woman, 
Where are they? Has no one condemned you? No, no one, no, no one, sir, she said. And neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Thanks, Nick. Who wrote the words, Sir, we want to meet Jesus? Oh, is that, are they your words? Um, well, it is a, a pleasure to be here, uh, a privilege to be with you once again, to be opening God's word with you. Um, and as we just heard, we, we, we come to a text that is uh, poignant. It's, it, it targets every single person, and whoever wants to get out of its sight, all you can really do is ignore it or deflect it. Uh, it gets all of us. Um, and the reason that it gets all of us is because um, we cannot escape relating to each other in the church. And more than that, as the church, we cannot not relate to the world. We're always caught up in this dynamic of relating. Um, So in the end, this part of Scripture identifies us all in need of being um, in need of love. But it also identifies us all as needing to love. It's a pretty simple conclusion. That's where we start with the conclusion. Um, It's your conclusion too, right? Um, Love God, love others. Um, It's where we start, but it's where we end. But this text helps us to explore those ideas of what it means to love God and what does it mean to love others, others in the body of Christ and also others uh, in the world. Uh, Before we get stuck into the passage, why don't we come um, to God in prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, we do not want to leave here without having heard from you. So we ask that by your Spirit you would teach us from your word. Would you speak into our lives? Encourage us where our faith is failing uh, and challenge us where our sight has left the cross. Uh, We pray this for your glory in our lives and this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, As Christians, we we love the truth, don't we? Uh, We... Have a high, we put a high value on the truth and we put a high value on knowing the truth. Um, we believe that the truth sets us free and we believe that the truth continues to set us free. I think we would all agree with that. We love it. The content of the passage that we're looking at today is about the truth. But it's not about the content of the truth. You see, the content of, this, of, the, of the truth is assumed there. Um, what we begin to inquire about is how we handle the truth. What impact does our handling of the truth have on those around us? If the truth sets people free, and that's the claim, 
then the way we handle the truth must bear witness to that freedom. That's what I'm trying to argue. So with this in mind, let's have a look at the text that we're looking at here. The first thing that we should be inquiring into, I think, is this so-called trap that we find out about in verse 6. They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. The Pharisees, uh, as is their usual caper, uh, are out to accuse Jesus. Um, That is, they want to find him guilty before the law so they can punish him according to the law, generally have him killed. And so they confront him in the temple courts where he is teaching. And here they set the trap. They put Jesus into a no-win situation. It doesn't matter what he says. Whatever he says, he's going to find himself caught. He's going to lose. The trap determines that he will be deemed a sinner. Now, I want us to pay particular attention today about the way we frame things, because that's what's going on. That's what this trap is. Specifically how the Pharisees are framing the situation that determines what is a godly response when confronted with a sinner. Okay? Because this is important for us, because we're confronted with sinners all the time, right? How do we frame the situation to deal with a sinner? Now, that sinner could be ourselves, right? Or it could be the other person. Uh, It could be um, a a non-Christian out there somewhere. Or it could be this kind of bigger non-Christian sinner called the world. Um, We want to think about how we're framing these sinners so that we can think about them. So what is this trap? Let's have a think about this. The trap is that the Pharisees have, a, have aligned mercy and unfaithfulness. To show mercy and let her live is to break the law and so be unfaithful to God. This is to say that mercy and faithfulness are like oil and water. There's no way that they can mix together. They don't mix. And so Jesus cannot show mercy because in doing so, he's going to demonstrate his unfaithfulness to God by breaking the law by not killing her, or at least sanctioning her killing. Which, of course, means the flip side, right? To be faithful to God, Jesus must uphold the law and sanction her killing. It's a very conniving and a very effective move by the Pharisees. Listen to verses 3, 4, and 5 again. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such woman. Now, what do you say? You see, the Pharisees give Jesus only Two options. The first option is that Jesus can be faithful to God, uphold the law, and sanction her execution. Or the second option, Jesus is to be unfaithful to the law, unfaithful to God, break it, and let her live. That's the dilemma. Grace and mercy are taken out of the equation as godly options for dealing with the sinner. And furthermore, 
If Jesus is going to show mercy and therefore break the law, he's going to be deemed as one who has broken the law. It's not about the woman, is it? It's about Jesus. He'll be, have to hold it. He'll be held account to the law for breaking it. That's the trap. Now, Jesus, this is the line, what do you say? But there's more to the trap, isn't there? We need to pause for a moment to inquire about why this is a no-win situation for Jesus. And the reason is this, because the Pharisees are right. They get the law right. There's no question about the woman's guilt. She was caught in the act. And the law is very, very clear. It stipulates that the adulteress and the adulterer must be executed by stoning. It's really clear. Now, some people say because of this conundrum, um, there's ways that we can get around this problem for Jesus, okay? Because he needs some help to get out of this. And so this is what the commentators say. Some argue that because the man who slept with the woman is absent, this might indicate that this is in fact a setup, okay? That she's not really guilty. She's simply being used by the Pharisees as a pawn in their game to accuse Jesus. Okay, that's one way that some people get around this conundrum for Jesus. Others argue that both adulterers need to be present in order for there to be a valid um, prosecution. That would help Jesus too, to get out of it. And still others argue that, well, at the time, the Roman law um, stipulated that the Jews had no recourse to such measures. So, you know, to help Jesus out here, he could, you know, kind of give recourse to um, his over, the overlords of the time. But notice that Jesus doesn't try and get out of it. He takes the issue at face value. He doesn't say that the Pharisees were acting fraudulently. Nor does he rely upon getting the woman off on a, on a technicality, on a legal technicality. That would be helpful. And nor does Jesus take advantage of the Roman law. Jesus does not pursue this kind of, of action to, to negotiate this really tricky trap. The woman is guilty. The law has spoken. She must be executed. That's what Jesus must navigate his way through. It's a right conundrum. Which means that it's not a trap, even though the Pharisees presented it as a trap. It's the reality of the situation. In fact, it's the reality of all our situations. This is the story that I find myself in daily, that you find yourself in, that the world finds itself in, right? We are guilty before the law. We deserve death. I mean, we read about this in Romans 3, right? These famous verses, floods of mind. There's no one righteous, not even one. And later we read about the verdict. For the wages of sin is death. That's the conundrum. We find ourselves guilty before the law, deserving of death. Now, Jesus, what do you say? It's a wonderful line. You see, this is not a trap. But the very reason Jesus came to earth 
Haven't we just been reflecting upon in great detail those wonderful words in Matthew 21, 21? She, Mary, will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus. That's not the best bit. The best bit is because he will save his people from their sins. This is not a trap. But the perfect moment to demonstrate why Jesus came into the world, right? Jesus is not unprepared for the Pharisees' maneuverings. He's been planning this one since eternity past, and here is his moment to shine. Verse 5 So, what do you say, Jesus? How are you going to shine? What is he going to say to get out of this? And in the most anticlimactic way possible, Jesus says, nothing. A little aside, can we stop ourselves from talking and speaking in the face of the presence of another sinner? We must speak, mustn't we? We see sin, we must speak. Just because we're asked to speak does not mean that we necessarily should. There is a time for silence and Jesus embraces that silence. And we understand why, right? Because whatever he says next is we going to use against the woman or himself. You see, in some sense, it's politically savvy. We could do with a bit of that these days. He understands that his words are about to condemn someone, perhaps himself, and so he's careful about his words. He does not speak. He writes. But Jesus bent down, and started to write on the ground with his finger. Of course, we don't know what he wrote. We're not going to speculate about that. But whatever was going on in the dirt, we read in verse 7 that the Pharisees begin to get a bit unsettled about this, and they ask more and more questions, you know, elaborating upon, what will you say? Probing Jesus to find out. Come on, speak up. Will you be faithful to God and sanction her death? Or will you be unfaithful to God, break the law and let her live? What do you say? And so with all the advanced questioning going on now, you can imagine it, it's all in full swing. Jesus gets up from the ground and he finally decides to speak. Notice what he does though. He rejects Totally, the framing of the discussion, the terms by which the whole scenario was framed. The Pharisees think they are in control of how Jesus must respond in this situation. Because faithfulness and mercy for Jesus are not like oil and water. For Jesus, they can mix. In response to the question, now what do you say? Jesus says, let any one of you who is without sin 
be the first to throw a stone at her. The Pharisees give two options. Jesus takes a third. If you're without sin, be the first one to throw a stone at her. And the questioning has to be silenced then. Jesus was silent first. He works out what to say and he silences the questioners. You can imagine their shock at hearing a response that wasn't on the docket. The Pharisees' conniving was really quite impressive and we've already granted that. But this is a masterstroke. With this one move, the no-win situation just vanishes. But did you notice, and this is crucial, did you notice how Jesus does it? Jesus does not look for a way to avoid the law. He's not looking for a simple way to justify the woman's sin, to save the woman's life. None of these things. Ironically, we find out here that Jesus is more serious about the law than the Pharisees. The Pharisees don't love the law. They don't love the truth. They are pretenders. They use the law to trap people, to kill people. For Jesus, on the other hand, being unfaithful to the law is out of the question. We know in Matthew 5, right, he came to fulfill the law. And so Jesus turns his face to those who saw fit to kill the woman. Who thought it was a righteous act to use rocks and stones and boulders to lacerate her skin and break her bones, make her bleed and cause her to go unconscious until she was dead. Jesus encounters these men. Each one of them, not it, them. If you, if you, if you, if you are without sin, go ahead. You are able and right. Pick up the stone and throw it. Here we see how much they really loved the law the truth that they wielded. Because in the end, they are not even convinced themselves of the validity of the trap. Or maybe conveniently, they're not too happy with the way they'd framed the trap because now it applies to them. Will they now break the law? Show their unfaithfulness to God and let this woman live? Including themselves as they admit to guilt? Or so it seems... Verse 9, at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. An encounter with Jesus does this. When we look into Jesus' face and we hear his words, we're confronted with the reality of who we are. 
What we really love, what we are pretending about. I'm not confronted with the reality of who you are when I meet Jesus. I'm confronted with the reality about me. I cannot hide from the truth that thing that I love. The Pharisees could not hide from Jesus and one by one, having encountered him, they walk away. This is, a, this is the power of an encounter with Jesus. They've dropped their rocks, starting with the oldest. The power of an encounter with Jesus to change a life bent on destruction of someone else in the name of faithfulness to God. It's a scary idea, isn't it? This is the power of an encounter with Jesus to change a life bent on destruction of someone in the name of faithfulness to God. They came as a powerful force, an institution with authority to hold up, to hold out, to wield God's law, ready to bludgeon a woman to death with stones, and they walk away one by one. This is what it means to be transformed by Jesus, right? That happened after they met Jesus face to face, after they heard Jesus' words. They were disarmed. They were stripped of their power, stripped of their authority, stripped of their so-called righteousness before a sinning world. This is a, a, a dramatic and powerful story about how a personal encounter with Jesus can save lives, right? I'm not talking about the woman condemned by the Pharisee according to what was right. We'll get there. I'm talking about the one who supposedly has and loves the truth. Jesus says, let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. You whose sexual desire is perfectly ordered, Jesus says to us, yeah, you can pick up a stone. You can. You whose tongue is under control, well, yeah. If we find ourselves in that place, we can pick up a stone, Jesus says. You whose appetite for money is justified, sure. Go and get a stone. You're, you're in your right. You whose marriage mirrors Christ and the bride, well, we too can go and pick up a stone. You, at the end of the day, whose righteousness is actually righteousness, pick up a stone and, throw in the, and stone the unrighteous. Of course, the question is very clear, isn't it? Who of us in this room would dare pick up a stone? And the result, of course, is dramatic. People avoid being condemned. The woman is given life, literally. She lives because the one with the truth, the self-righteous ones, are humbled by Jesus. This is the kind of witness I think Jesus is asking of the church to be before the world. 
This is the kind of witness Jesus is asking the church to be towards its own. Humble and deeply honest. The very thing a Pharisee is not. So having personally encountered each of the Pharisees, Jesus then turns to the woman. Finally we get there. This is the poignant moment of the story. Because Jesus can encounter the woman. The woman, the sinner at the centre of the story, gets to meet Jesus face to face. But it could not have happened if Jesus had not stepped in and encountered the Pharisees first. Do you see? How tragic is it when people are condemned by people with the truth before they meet Jesus? But thanks to God, she does meet Jesus. You see, she gets to meet Jesus because the Pharisees didn't kill her. The Pharisees did not kill her because they first met Jesus. Verse 10 and 11. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? That is, didn't even one of them find cause to pick up a stone? No, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. The story is about encountering Jesus and the life that encounter brings. Not only to us who throw stones, but others at whom we throw stones. And we miss this when we're too eager to get to the end of the story. Too quickly do we skip to the last five words, go and sin no more. To miss the story simply to state, go and sin no more, is exactly what this story is about. Don't miss the story. That's the moral of the story. Why do we not want to dwell in these moments of encounter with Jesus when these are the moments that transform? Why do we not want to revel in the love that Jesus shows us in these encounters? Because that's where life is found. Why do we not want to rejoice in Jesus' mercy to not pick up a stone? Where are your accusers? Jesus asks. This is a profound question because the one who has no sin stands before her. He could accuse her. He could pick up a stone. But he does not. Not one of them condemned you and neither do I. Go and sin no more. It's amazing. To be one who stands and condemns people because of their sin, even under the godly aura of faithfulness to the truth, is counter to what Jesus came to this earth 
to do. That's not my words. They're John's words, remember? John 3.17 For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Well, that's what happened in our story. Jesus refused to do what he had every right to do, condemn the woman. But also, condemn each of the Pharisees too. He did not pick up a stone, even though he could have picked up a stone and killed every single one of those people. Instead, the Pharisees go on their way, one by one, having encountered Jesus. And the woman goes on her way, having encountered Jesus. Knowing that they are all sinners, deserving of death, yet having received mercy. That's God's grace. The changed lives are not result of law, but grace. Their guilt before the law does not have the last word. The last word belongs to Jesus. That's why what do you say is so important. But let's backtrack for a moment as we begin to conclude. How has Jesus navigated his way through the conundrum set by the Pharisees back in verses 3 to 6? If we take it seriously, then Jesus has compounded the issue, right, by not just letting the woman go free, but also the Pharisees, right? Jesus shows mercy. He does not uphold the law, not giving them what they deserve. He's been unfaithful. They all deserve death. They didn't get it. They got life. The question still stands, even though the Pharisees and the woman are long gone. Jesus, what do you say? Remember, it wasn't a trap, was it? It's the predicament the world find themselves in and those Pharisees and that woman is just one scenario that kind of captures what we find ourselves in. In another story later in the Gospel of John, Jesus says the final words, it is finished. He hung on a cross not guilty, yet condemned to death according to the law, a blasphemer, a body lacerated, bones surely broken from the beatings and the the piercing that was given to him, blood shed, a life executed. Then Jesus says nothing because he is dead. How does Jesus respond to the question, now what do you say? He says, it is finished. In Peter, 1 Peter 3.18, this is what Peter says. Take me, righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Jesus encounters the Pharisees who deserve death for their sin, yet yet lets each of them live. 
taking each of their debts on himself, a righteous man for unrighteous men. He then encounters the woman who deserved death, yet lived. Who deserved death for her sin, yet Jesus lets her live in the same kind of way, taking her death on himself, a righteous man for an unrighteous woman. Whether we are the ones condemning people or the one who, ones who stand condemned, we find ourselves in both boats, don't we? We need to encounter Jesus. This passage does not single out the other person who needs to encounter Jesus. It's not about them. It is about me. It singles out me as the Pharisee. It singles out me as the sinner. I need to meet Jesus face to face. I need to experience his mercy, his grace, his forgiveness. I need to dwell in Jesus' mercy. I need to revel in his love. I need to abide in his life. This is why I don't condemn people or I should not condemn people. This is why I have a reason to go and sin no more. Not because the law says sin no more, but because of Jesus' mercy and grace. We find ourselves in difficult times in all sorts of moral dilemmas that are going on in society. Yet God longs for his church to love the truth. When the world asks us, what do you say? Or when we decide that we must speak. We must not fall into the trap where we must choose between mercy and faithfulness. God longs for his church to be shaped by his answer to the question. Now what do you say? And Jesus' answer to that question is, well, whoever is without sin, put down a stone. But ultimately what he says is, it is finished. You see, that's what brings real life. That's what brings real moral change. Jesus says, it is finished, a righteous man for an unrighteous person. The church shaped by Jesus' words, it is finished, is comprised of believers that do not have rocks in their hands, but is comprised of people who were threatened by those rocks who now, having not received what they deserved, now have this beautiful life to hear Jesus' words and respond in obedience. That message is what we have for the world. We must be people who are alive, not dead, by others in our congregation or in our church. We must be alive and we must be living, that is to say, following Christ and hearing his words to sin no more. 
We forever dwell in his mercy. We forever revel in his love. We abide in his life. We have good reason to heed Jesus' call now to faithful obedience. Because Jesus had the last word. If we lose the wonder of the cross, then we lose the wonder of the life we and others have been given in Jesus. It's at the foot of the cross where we hear those wonderful words of Jesus that enables him to mix faithfulness and mercy. It is finished. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, there is no more a sobering moment than when you call us out uh, for pretending to be righteous. For pretending to be the people that uh, we tell everyone that we are. When you expose us for who we really are as sinners. But thank you, you do not give us what we deserve. And thank you that you have not given everyone what they deserve. But that you have been patient in time for your son to come, live, die, come to life. so that we can hear the amazing news that it is finished. That where we cannot find a way to be merciful and faithful, you find a way. By taking on yourself the justice that we deserved and affording us the life that you win through your resurrection. Lord, I pray that you would bring life to the church in this world as we encounter you, as we put down our rocks and bask in the forgiveness and mercy that you've shown us. But Lord, we also know that there is another side to this story that is the life of obedience where we are to hear your words, go and sin no more, and to put them into practice in our lives. I pray, Lord, that those of us who find ourselves under the burden of sin, uh, in the face of uh, guilt and shame for what we have done, I pray that you would um, speak so that people hear those words. Uh, bring life and forgiveness. And I pray that people would, would feel the mercy that you've shown them in not doing what you had every right to do. I pray that we would be released of the grip of sin in our lives. And I pray, Lord, that 
we would that you would strengthen us with your spirit to lead lives that are obedient to your call to sin no more. And Lord, I pray that this picture of the church as having been forgiven and afforded life, yet hearing the call to obedience, I pray that this picture would be something that the world sees here at Golden Bay as this church lives out what it means to be found out having been encountered with Jesus, yet having been given life in that same encounter. That we would have this beautiful story to share with those uh, next-door neighbours, work colleagues, school mums, fellow students. I pray that we would have this amazing story to tell. One that does not bring condemnation, but the beautiful news that Jesus came to this world to bring life. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thank you so much, Dan. Wonderful, powerful message. I often say that uh, this is a church If uh, to people who come, newcomers. I say to them, if you are broken, you're welcome. If you're not broken, come back when you realize you are. <laughs> Don't say that bit. But that's who we are, because we are broken people loved by Jesus, who somehow by grace alone stand. We're invited in by his redeeming love to stand before the throne of God above. And he pulls us close with his nail-scarred hands. Beautiful stuff. Why don't we stand and sing and celebrate that? Which song? Boldly I approach. Oh. <laughs> Sorry.